Good evening, Hope. Crack your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 6 as we'll continue this series. Uh, If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, Keith is right. Uh, My name is Tom and I would love to meet you afterwards. So please do hang around. We'll have Q&A today and we'll have some food afterwards as well to to hang out. You go to Ephesians 6. We're we're coming to the close tonight of the the, the section in Ephesians that is centered in on the spiritual warfare that every Christian is engaged in whether you know it or not. He said that the devil is your enemy. He's attacking and Christ, our our, our leader, our warrior and our Lord, he is fighting against the, the kingdom of darkness and establishing his own kingdom by the power of his father that's happening whether you realize it or not and so the call of Paul has been to open your eyes realize the reality that is around you and armor up take up the armor of God in all the ways that he's been telling us but while we're in Ephesians 6 and and you're going there in Jesus language to give us a little bit of balance to the to the uh, imagery I guess of of what Paul has been saying Jesus in his earthly ministry he also spoke of, of, of a way that we can picture spiritual warfare. And it was in Luke 11 when he said this, If I am among you casting out demons by the finger of God, and was he doing that by the power of God rather than the power of Satan? Yes, of course he was. If that is the case, he says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We, we, we are in error if we think of the kingdom of God as something that is purely and entirely future. It'll happen when we all get to heaven and God creates the, the new heavens and the new earth. No, the kingdom has matters in which it breaks forth even now. And it was in place of the arrival of the kingdom had begun to occur in the arrival of the king at his first coming. And Jesus goes on to say this. This is another way to understand his earthly ministry. When a strong man fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoil. The strong man is, of course, the devil. What Ephesians 2 said in Pauline theology was the prince of the power of the air working through the sinful world and in sinners, leading them to do all sorts of things that he led them to do. So so that the, the world is pictured by Jesus as kind of the palace or the kingdom of Satan himself. He's the strong man, no priest, prophet, king, judge, ruler, military hero of of any Old Testament type could ever rise up to disarm the devil. Rather, he kept on deceiving the nations. He kept on uh, attempting God's own people into idolatry. But Jesus, Jesus Christ is the one who comes and is the stronger man than the strong man. And what Jesus is saying is that you should see in his exorcism of demons and as his casting out of them and overcoming the devil in his earthly ministry, what that is, is a sense that he was binding up Satan. He was chaining him up and cuffing him up and throwing him to the side, not so that he is entirely without effect, but so that he cannot stop the plundering of his palace, the the receiving of all things that were once taken and destroyed by him. Jesus is now standing at the gates of the palace, having beaten up Satan by his life, death, and resurrection, and now says, Christians, all who are called by my name, come on in, plunder the souls of his kingdom, and take them out so that they might be transplanted into the kingdom of my God. That's one of the dynamics that we can understand, the spiritual warfare occurring. And so that Ephesians 6 is absolutely true. On one hand, Satan is this enemy with an army and with forces and schemes and authorities behind the scenes. And he's attacking the church. But Jesus has already, in a sense, bound his ability to do anything to stop the progress of the church. So that just as the kingdom is now and in another sense will come in the future... So also, I don't want you to think that the victory that we partake in, it's not existent now, but Jesus will come back and then have victory. No, Jesus is currently on his military conquest and campaign throughout the world, presently victorious. Now, we look around. I'm not saying it's all roses and daisies. It's it's not the case that he has won everything and put down every enemy from from the get-go. It's a progress. But in our battle, how helped we will be to think that Jesus is the victorious leader of God's people, building his church in the world. His present victory 
is real, even though it is going in a progress onwards. Jesus is the strong man, and we, his people, we're involved in tonight's passage, verse 18 through 20. We're going to see it sort of comes to us in two parts. There's kind of the sense in which we're in the trenches, and we have a radio, and we're calling for an airstrike. We see the enemy advancing. We see them hitting certain checkpoints. We can see certain bases on the map, and, and we're calling on God, send the airstrike. That's prayer. That's warfare by airstrike is prayer. We call on God to do his work. But then there's another sense in which we have the ground attack. But Paul then says, now also pray for my ministry because I'm evangelizing and I need help. That's the sense in which he, he straps on the shoes of readiness to preach the gospel that we saw a few weeks ago. And he's taking one step at a time, one conversation, one gospel presentation, one sermon at a time. And so Paul gives us in this part this idea of spiritual warfare. Airstrike by prayer, ground attack by evangelism. Let's read Ephesians 6. Verse 18 through 20. Let me get there. <clears throat> I'm slow. I've been talking. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Actually, let's start in verse 16 so we have the beginning of a sentence. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now may God bless his own word in our midst this evening. There we go. First thing we're going to look at is prayer, the, the airstrike that we call God to do with this gift to his army, his people, his church. We've been given this gift of prayer, this, this walkie-talkie or this, this radio telecommunication piece of equipment by which we can call God to drop the, 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 the fire from heaven on the situation that we find ourselves in. He says here, Paul uses a whole bunch of all phrases all prayer, all times, for all people, in all ways, with all perseverance. And we start here when he says, praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. At which point we'll usually immediately say, well, of course, he doesn't mean that. That's hyperbolic because you can't pray all the time. You've got to eat, give a talk at uni and speak to other people. I mean, that doesn't work. I would say, no, he does mean that. We just need to edit what we think of prayer as. Prayer is not only, it is, but it is not only when we are in active verbal communication to God in a consecrated time. Rather, we, we should be living a life where we are always in a spirit of prayer, I will say further that we should always be able to be no more than a few seconds away from a deep time of prayer. This is what I think Paul means. Now when he says we should pray without ceasing, we should pray at all times. It's, it's kind of like, I'll use myself as an example, don't know about your marriage, but at least my marriage, is that me and my wife are talking all of the time. If you were to knock on my door one Saturday and I'm at home not working that day and you knock on the door, you open up and you see me, if you were to ask, are you in a conversation with your wife right now, it's probably 50-50, maybe, but maybe I'm also doing all of the amazing things that I just do as a husband. I don't mean to, you know, I'm fixing things, I'm, I'm building, I'm whatever. I don't even know what good husbands do. Let's pretend that I knew and I was doing that thing. Other parts of the day, I might say, yeah, I am. I'm actually right in the middle of talking to my wife. Are you in a conversation with your wife with joy is a maybe. If you were to ask, though, are you currently talking with joy? The answer would be yes. If the, if the question was, are you on talking terms with your wife? The, the answer is yes. So, in fact, I can vouch for my marriage that we are at any point, even right now, in the middle of at least five or six hundred conversations at any one time. It is, a, it is a case with joy that she will just say, anyway, as I was saying, and continue to, to continue to say something that I spent about a minute trying to figure out when she was saying this. And realize it was about a week ago that we finished this conversation. It didn't finish, but 
but stopped for the moment, that conversation. We'll just pick up other things and we'll go, anyway, as she said, and, or, or like I was telling you, and, and here we are. We're just always interwoven with about a hundred different conversations at any one time. We are even right now. She's, she's sent me something I'm yet to get back to her over Messenger. We are constantly talking, even though we're not in the immediate moment conversing. This is what it needs to be like with us and God. That, that we, are, we, are, we are able at any point to simply turn to him and to pour our heart out or whatever the situation requires. Now, I say this because I think the average Christian probably lives somewhere between a block or four or five suburbs away from the throne room of God. That if I was to say to you, can you pray for this thing right now? You go, whoa, whoa, give me a minute. I've got about three weeks of sin to confess. I've got neglect of prayer that I need to work through. I need to, I need to sort of, you know, get, get my, my spiritual praying juices flowing before I can just go into the presence of God. But, but I think it is the privilege and the command and the example of the apostles that every Christian basically live at the threshold of the door room at the least. Uh, or, or, or more, live inside the, the throne room of God. So that at any moment, we just, we just turn to him and we can pray. We're, we're not down the street. We haven't moved out of the throne room of our Father. We are constantly on the threshold of the room that we can merely look to him and pray. Is that how you live? Is that your every day? Maybe, maybe at a prayer meeting, you've got yourself prepared and you're, and you're ready to pray out, 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 out among, in front of other people. Maybe at Bible study, although maybe you're the sort of person saying, no, not me, bypass me, I don't want to pray. Maybe right now, if I was to point to you, though, maybe I will. I'll just see who's the most nervous. Are we going to do this now? We don't, we're not usually a call from the stage kind of people, are we? No, and we're not going to do it. But how many of you just about, oh, I need a, my car, I left something in my car. Uh, how many of you are genuinely comfortable enough to, to maybe it's, it's the in front of people that is uncomfortable, but, but, but how many of you would be able in this moment to at least yourself and God genuinely pray? Or would the first five minutes or so be a, be a silent thinking of God and wondering, how do I even do this again? Am I allowed to get, do, I've got some things to talk about. How many of us genuinely live at the threshold of the throne room of God? And, and he says, of course, without seeking, uh, without ceasing and at all times. And in this moment, he doesn't give. This is another idea of the universality of our prayer life. It should just be at all moments of our waking day. He doesn't give it its own weaponry or its own armory, does it? Ephesians doesn't say, and then at the end of all of these other things, take up the, 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 the bow and arrow of prayer. Or he doesn't say, take up the javelin of supplication. He doesn't give it its own thing because it's not its own weapon. It is the way that you put on every piece of armor we have said so far. Can, can you imagine? Maybe we've tried. Maybe you, you're going to test to this. Can you, can you imagine trying to put on the belt of truth, think truthfully about what the Word of God says without at some point in there asking God to give it to you and, and asking God for help to understand the Word? Can you imagine putting on the helmet of salvation or, 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 or taking his promises by which you protect yourself by faith? Can you do any of those things uh, without almost naturally and automatically praying to God in the doing? Prayer is not its own separate act of warfare. It is, it is part and parcel of how you put on every piece of the armory so far. That's why he says at all times, all of the time praying in the spirit. Everybody has enough things to pray for. It, it, is, it is always the case that we have things that we can pray for to God. So I would say this, that our praying at all times means an awareness and a nearness to God always. And being able to pray to him in the moment for a few seconds, for, for, for a few minutes as, as silently in your mind. But also we should have the discipline, the consecrated or set apart times of intentional prayer. Maybe for you, it's the morning before the sun comes up, like Jesus. Maybe for, for others, it's, it's later at night or on breaks at work, whenever it may be. Do you give yourself a 10, 20, 30, maybe more, half an hour, 50, an hour and a half times when you set apart time for prayer so that you can go through your more, your more pressing needs and, and you can think through other people's needs and you can thank God for the ways that he's been blessing you. Set apart times and also constantly should be our prayer life. He says here that we should be praying in the spirit and no, it does not 
mean praying in tongues. It does not mean praying in tongues. The phrase in the spirit can mean also a fair range of things in the New Testament. It may be that somebody was receiving and speaking in the spirit to write the Bible. It could be that somebody is speaking or preaching in the spirit in the sense that the spirit is helping them. Really what it means in the spirit is no more and no less than that we are relying on, we are leading, we are led by, and we are guided by the Holy Spirit in the action. It's been said, I believe it was Ravenhill, he said, the surest way to quench the Spirit is to neglect his prompts to pray. Now maybe you're aware that the Spirit may lead other things. He may give me somebody particular to go and evangelize. He may, he may tell me something that I should not know about somebody else's secret, and when I speak to them about it, they'll fall down in repentance. Maybe. But I don't think we're, we're there yet. We shouldn't be worried about the extraordinary ways he'll lead us if we're not even listening to his prompts to pray. The quenching of the Spirit happens whenever, whenever the, the Spirit leads us or tells us to, to be in prayer for somebody or maybe for nothing in particular, and we just put it off. Praying in the Spirit is to rely on Him. We could say this. Firstly, it's being sensitive to His leadings and His prompts. Secondly, to pray in the Spirit is to rely on Him for help. And thirdly, when you get stuck in prayer, praying in the Spirit will mean to ask Him for guidance. We, we listen to him when he prompts us. We rely on him that he's going to help me pray spirit-filled prayers. And when I'm finding it difficult, I'll, I'll call out to him and ask, please help me pray. Uh, give me words from the Bible to pray. That's what praying in the spirit means. And, and, and it is the case, especially New Testament, that, that this, this, it's the spirit that is the active ingredient in acceptable prayers to God. It is the spirit who dwells in us and leads us in prayer. He is the active ingredient in acceptable prayers to God and not an external form or show. It is not if you have the most impressive words to speak. It is not if you have the longest prayers or the, or the most amazing vocabulary in your prayer. It's not that. It's if you are praying in reliance on the Spirit. Now, I think that's very good news for you if you're a new believer if you're a believer with, a, with, with just a non-existent prayer discipline in your life, if you're somebody that really hasn't worked out this prayer muscle before, good, good news, you don't need to be impressive. You just need to rely on the Spirit and pray in the name of Christ, and you will be heard. This is how Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. He said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentile, like the pagans do. Do not heap up empty phrases, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. They have mantras or chants that they just say over and over and over at certain times of the day. Or maybe we'll take a shot at the Catholics and say, you know, they've got their beads and they'll say the Hail Mary so many times, thinking that to do it a certain amount will arrive at a certain level of being heard. And we say, that's so silly, but then us Protestants come to prayer meeting or sit down in our Bible studies or sit down and we start to pray and we do the same thing, don't we? Piling up useless words. I'll give you an example. Oh, Lord, just, Father God, just in this moment, Lord, thank you, Father, that just now, Lord, just, just here in this, in this place, Father, here and moving right now, Lord, amen. <laughs> what? I feel excited, but I was waiting for the call to action. Or, or of course, that, maybe that's not many of us. We're recovering from those things here at Hope Mostly Reformed Baptist Church. But some of us are maybe more on the other end, aren't we? And we're, the, we're just the Father God. We haven't said a thee or a thy in our whole life. And then it's, Father, thy, thy presence hath filled us in this, in this present propitiatory function. As we, as we just expatiate the, the, the biblical exegesis, Father, thou's holiestness is, is amongst us. You know, what in the world? You don't even know what you're saying. I mean, God knows what you're trying to say, but he cares very little for how you're trying to say it. The, 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 the thing that gets you heard is not impressive words. The reason that your prayers are acceptable is not because anybody else would be at all impressed by what you say or how you say it. It is simply this. It is because you're children of God. That's why you're heard. Because he is a listening father. He loves to hear our words when we bumble and trip over words and when we mumble and say things we, 
maybe we listen back and go, that wasn't even theologically true. Thanks for not killing me, God. That was, that was very inaccurate right then. But God loves to hear his people pray. It is because we are children, his children, that he bends his ear to hear us. And he says here also, with all prayer and supplication, verse 18. At all times, in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, also in the, towards the end of verse 18, he says, making supplication for all the saints. That, that is, prayer is in generally addressing God. And then supplication is specifically asking for certain things from God for certain situations. So, so he's just saying, do the prayers and do the asking for things. Do all of them all the time. And this kind of pushes back on what was not wrong, but was very formal and rigid in much of the, the Old Testament worship ways. That, that even as tradition had built up, they would have the times of the day at certain places for the prayers. It would be the, the confessatory prayer, the, 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 the prayer of invocation, the, the prayer of thanksgiving, the, the prayer of adoration. And, and so the prayers would be offered up at different times of the day for different purposes. And here's Paul saying, wherever you are, Whatever is the need, whatever comes to your mind, pray about that. Pray to God that he would help in that need. Or maybe, maybe you don't have a need that's coming to mind. You just want to get on your knees, get alone, maybe sit on your bus. You want to just, just close your eyes in the middle of, the, middle of whatever you're doing, not driving. I've known a guy to do Don't close your eyes while driving, okay? I've got a flipped over Triton story to tell you that. That Triton is a great Mitsubishi old ute. It's a, uh, right, on, right on, old Wembley, uh, on Wembley Road. Don't do that. Don't pray closed eyes while driving. But, but at any point, back to the point, at any moment of the day where you are, you can offer up any kind of prayer. Now, I think this, again, is extremely encouraging for us, for new Christians, maybe for Christians with very poor prayer disciplines, that, that you can never, ever get backed up into the corner of prayerlessness because you don't have anything to pray for. You can pray for literally anything. And if you say, no, I, I'm not sure I can pray because I struggle to understand the word and I struggle to feel close to God and and when I'm praying, I'm constantly distracted and I, I can't put words into my thoughts and then in, into prayers towards God and, and I don't feel like God hears me. I'm like, cool, that's a, just then, that was 30 seconds worth of a prayer. Just say it to God. I struggle to obey the word. I struggle to fear hurt. I, 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 to feel hurt. I, I don't pray well. I, I'm easily... To, just say it to God. You've got a prayer. Pray about your prayerlessness if you cannot pray. At every point, we have something that we can pray to God for. And, and I challenge you, as I think Paul does, I challenge you to be specific. When he speaks of supplications here, he means legitimate, genuine situations that require a particular outcome. Pray for it. Yeah, I, uh, we see this in Paul, that, that even in Romans 1, we'll come back to this at the end of the sermon, but in Romans 1, he says, please pray that I would be able to come to you. That's his prayer. I want to come to Rome to preach, to, to expound on the gospel in your midst. Please pray for that. He, he asks for specific things and specific needs because it's so easy to even just look a, a little bit pietistic and holy with very vague overly general prayers. I'll give you some more examples of ones that I've heard. God, just right now, we just pray that, but I just ask that you would, you would just be a good father. Amen. All right, well, when you pray like that, your prayers always get answered because that's literally never going to not be true. That's cheating. That's what that is. God, I pray that you would just be, you would just be with them in this moment. Amen as the consuming fire, or as the present God who is hearing them? Well, how do you want God to be with them? Or, or Lord, just, just bless your people. In, in just in the world, may do, just a blessing on everyone. Amen. You know, what, what is that? How, how quickly we go really vague, a little bit quiet. Is this, is this striking a nerve, guys? Uh, <laughs> uh, we just get so vague because God's always answering those prayers, because he can't not. And, and if you get more specific... I'm, I'm reformed, but I do pray for specific financial needs. That may come as a surprise. I pray for you. I pray for the church, for my own family, that specific and particular, even financial, I'll even go one more, we even pray for particular acts of healing. There you go. For particular needs in sickness. 
You can pray specifically, and, and here's the fear that I think we have. If I pray so specifically, if, if, it, if at Bible study and we go around and we're asking needs and there's the prayer requests and we put them all up on the whiteboard, God be good, bless people, church, preach, there, there's our prayer requests. You, can't go, you can come back the next week and go, hey, was, did God answer the prayers? Absolutely he did, brother. You know, he's still good. Church still exists. He's still a father. Hallelujah. God is good all the time, amen? <laughs> when rather, if we go and we say, look, my auntie uh, is actually, I mean, I'm seeing her tomorrow. We're having a coffee. She's not a Christian. She's quite antagonistic to the faith. I'm inviting her to church. The plan is that she'll stay over Saturday. I want to bring her Sunday morning to church. Can you pray that Aunt Josephine is with us Sunday morning? There's a specific thing that we can pray so particularly about and see whether God would come through, and you know what, or not. Next time a Bible study, hey, 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 uh, uh, Smith, did, did Aunt Josephine come? And you know, she didn't. And you know what that does? It demands us to pray more or change our request. I would challenge you to pray very, very specifically and particularly about needs for when God answers those prayers, oh my goodness, the encouragement that comes to realize that that was the exact thing you asked prayer for. The particular thing you prayed for, they asked you to pray for it, and their friend got saved, or that situation opened up because of your prayers. How good God is to listen to every single one of us. And he says here, <coughs> be alert with all perseverance. End, uh, end of verse 18. To that end, keep alert with all Perseverance. This is so needed. An alertness and an attentiveness to the, to the battle that prayer is and to the spiritual battle that we're all engaged in with intentional, long-lasting perseverance. He doesn't say, when you find time, pray. He doesn't say, it'll come up, you'll know it, and, and, and prayer will just tap you on the shoulder, and there you go, you'll have 25 minutes set aside at sunrise, and the angels will be floating, and pray then. I think one of the trickiest, the, the simply the most invisible schemes that the devil does for Christians in warfare is to convince us, to have us think, I will pray zealously, urgently, soul-renderingly, I will pray when I have the time. And then he just, like, a, like an older brother with a $5 note on a fishing line, he just keeps tugging it that time just outside of our reach so that we never find it. You never find time to pray. You carve out time to pray like a miner in hard stone. There is everything in the world. There is every need you have. There is every notification on every social media app that you have that is fine-tuned by Satan himself to keep you from praying. But friends, we must find the time. With alertness, with perseverance, we put our minds to praying. We must do these. And, and then he said, he gives a specific way to pray. He actually brings it back to himself, which is encouraging, then discouraging, and then encouraging again when you hear what Paul says. He gives him a specific thing to pray for. And at first, it's great. Here's what he says. He says, and also for me. You pray for all the saints, for all the needs, all the supplications, all the time in the Spirit, and also pray for me. Now, now then we hear, that's, that's very encouraging. Look, even the Apostle Paul, the, the anointed, spirit-filled, prophecy, revelation, mystery of the gospel, preaching apostle, even he needs prayer. That is encouraging to me. When, when you go to the, maybe it's a personal trainer, and, and they give you this, I want you to hate the rest of your life diet. I'm like, you know that, that one? You ever been given that? And you look at it and you go, oh, you, want, you just want me to die. Or, or wish I was dead? Is this your job? Is this what I'm paying you for? And then you find out, no, this is what the PT eats as well. This is what he's going home and eating, this red meat, this chugging eggs in the morning, all of this stuff. And you go, okay, so, so, so this, this need of this diet is not just because I'm so fat I'm about to die. This is just what strong people eat. You know, this is a little bit encouraging. But as Paul says, please pray for me, we realize, oh, okay, we don't need prayer because we're so pathetic because we're so weak, because we're so sinful, we need prayer because God has designed our relationship with him to thrive on prayer. Even Jesus prayed lengthily, daily, continually. So, so the need of prayer is not because of our sin, though, though it is that. It's not merely because of our weakness, though there is that. That makes it more needful. But it's simply because a father-child relationship has been designed by God 
to be at its strongest according to our prayer. So we must pray. We simply have to pray. If Paul needs prayer, then we need prayer all the more. And I'm not ashamed or afraid to ask for prayer, neither should any one of us be. He says that that's encouraging, and then he, and then he sort of worries us for a bit with what he asks. He says, pray for me also that words may be given me in opening my mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And you slam on the brakes. And you go, what? If your pastor ever came up to you and just tapped you on the shoulder and went, can you pray for me? This Trinity thing. Can you? I don't get it. Is it important? You know, justification by faith, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Can you just pray that I get my head around the gospel? Is that like the divinity, the manhood of Jesus? It's... Do we care? Can you pray for me? You, you, you stop tithing is what you do. You, you, you get worried and then you run. Your pastor should not have that prayer request. <laughs> now, now here's Paul, the apostle, who we thought just wrote an entire book based on his knowledge of the gospel. And then his, his final prayer request is, can you please pray that I know how to, how to explain the gospel to people? You know, we're eating what you just served up and now you're asking for cooking lessons? This is not encouraging. Why does Paul, is that what we're to, we're to conclude? That right here, at the end of Ephesians 6, Paul the apostle needs help in explaining the gospel. Yes! He doesn't need the information. He doesn't need the data. He's not asking, man, if God could just make clear whether we get forgiven by works or by faith. That's not what he's asking. He's asking... Father, uh, Father, through your people and people to the Father, may you pray that I know what to say at the moment in the situation to the people in such a way that just cut through the nooks and crannies of their soul into their heart. Would, would God give me such an enlightening or, or just use my words in such a way as to be most effective? Every single one of us needs that prayer, no matter how well you know the gospel. Because the people that we explain it to, the situations that we're sharing the gospel will change. And you've never shared the gospel with the same person in the same situation twice. Every time that evangelism calls on you, open air preaching in the city, talking on the bus, putting a gospel tract into a neighbor's hand, inviting them to church and discussing afterwards, whatever it may be, our warfare, a soldier has never shot the same bullet at the same enemy twice. It is, it is always slightly different in the seconds, in the moments, in the atmosphere, and so also, even Paul humbles himself, says, I need help. Uh, I don't know how, how frequent I am now, how, 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 how uh, in, inclined I am to just fall on a script. It's the same four-point conversation every time, and that's what they get, and that's me sharing the gospel. I, 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 just, I just remind them they're probably not elect, and then, then they leave me alone. Right? We, we need God's help in order to explain and speak the gospel in a way that meets each, pe- each person where God has them. But it's not the data that he needs, it's the help doing that. And he says specifically, what he's asking prayer for is for boldness. He says it twice, actually. He says, and also for me, verse 19, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. To proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knew it was his job to speak boldly. Paul was in, he says it here, he was in chains in a Roman rental house with a Roman guard right next to him in house arrest because he knew very well how to preach the gospel boldly. And yet, he's asking us to pray for him that he keep on being bold. What an encouraging reality. No matter how, how many maybe uh, open-air sermons or however many bold conversations in the workplace, no matter how many, how many successful evangelistic opportunities God has given to you, you will always be in need for God to give you appropriate levels of boldness. We know that boldness is not, always, is not the same as being bombastic. Bold does not mean bulldoze people. I know you're surprised to hear that from me. This is, not my, this is not my sitting down on the bus conversational voice. Let me just point that out here. This is my preaching voice. That, that we might think bold, which means never let them get an, a word in, never let them feel uh, at all understood or related to. I, I need a, I'm, I'm Isaiah the prophet here. I'm, I'm John the Baptist here, and I've got to make them all want to kill me. Boldness means a reserved 
calmness that never flinches to speak the truth. Whether it's a whisper around a dinner table, whether it's a, a standing firm on something being challenged, whether whatever it may be, boldness means not flinching to, and drawing back from speaking the truth, but always speaking what the person needs to hear in an appropriate tone and an appropriate manner. Paul asks for precisely this boldness. He had multiple situations coming up that he required this help for. I, I would make as a little application right here. Please, please, on the basis of Paul's own words, pray for your pastor. Me, I'm preaching every week. Your, your other elders that fill in and teach small groups, the people that, that, that explain to you the Bible in the midweek, pray for especially your elders and anyone else that you know. And pastors that you, that you know, pray all oh, the dire need of the day. The need of a day, if I can just speak to Australia at least, is pastors that just care what God thinks more than what anybody else thinks. We need it. We won't get it unless the people ask God for it. Failing to ask God for clear, bold preachers is the same as going to preachers that tell you what you want. We need to ask that God embolden our preachers and the preachers of the future, the young men yet to be released into ministry, pray for them. Look at what Paul had to deal with. Go to, go to Acts chapter 28. And my, my trust is that if you're in Acts chapter 28, I hope you don't have a, I hope you own a study Bible, but for the point of tonight, so I hope you just have a normal Bible and Romans starts right after Acts on the same page. Because then you can see both Romans 1 and Acts chapter 28, because we're going to look at both of them. And if not, you will be doing extra flicking study Bible brethren. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1 and Acts chapter 28, right on flip sides of the, of the pages right here. In Acts chapter 28, Paul, back in Acts chapter 25 is where I'll start the story. He gets, he gets arrested. Uh, you know what? Let's go all the way back, Acts chapter 19. Let's just do the whole slog here tonight. We'll lock the doors and we, we'll, we'll go all night. In Acts chapter 19, Paul preaches in Ephesus. The revival happens. The church gets planted. Now he leaves them, comes back briefly, speaks Acts chapter 20 to encourage the pastors, and he tells them, see you later. I'm going to go die. My life now is in God's hands. And he told me it's death around the corner if I go back to Jerusalem, but I must. And so he goes back to Jerusalem. He carries the Gentiles' monetary gift to give to the poor Jewish nation. And, and he's saying by that, the Gentiles are one in soul with you. We are not against one another. And, and so he gives this gift to the Jerusalem church. And while he's praying in temple, he gets arrested because the Jews have lied about him, saying he's trying to bring these filthy Gentiles into the temple. So he gets arrested. He gets beat up. He gets thrown in prison. And through multiple levels of appeal, he finds himself in front of King Agrippa the Roman proconsul, the, the sort of delegate over in Israel from the Roman side of things, and, and he's speaking to him and, and Felix, and, and there he gives his defense. And, as a, and by his defense, I mean he just he defends himself for about a verse, and then he just preaches the gospel, and then ends it with, was that what you asked? I, I can't remember. Well, I'm preaching Jesus here today. And, and at the end of it, he says, I appeal, as a Roman citizen, he uses his legal rights to appeal to Caesar. Now, here's why we know that was Paul's strategy for the mission, not just a legal, legal, uh, uh, legal aid. Paul had been told that he was acquitted. They'd already told him, we have nothing against you. Like, the, the Jewish argumentation doesn't stand with us. We don't care about it. You can go home. And when he appeals to Caesar, they go away and talk and go, if he didn't do that, we could have sent him home. Now we've got, to use, we've got to use empire money to board this guy on a boat, send him over to the capital city, and then he'll get his, his, his defense in front of Caesar. And what's Paul doing? He's rubbing his hands in the background saying, I get to go to the capital city. I've been wanting to go to the I couldn't afford it. God kept on taking me elsewhere. I had too much mission on my hands to get to the capital city. And now, guess what? I'm going to the capital city and Rome's paying for it. Look at what he said in Romans chapter 1. Before he even arrived in Ephesus. A few years, about, about five, six years prior. Or four, five years prior to even preaching in Ephesus. This is what he says in Romans 1 verse 9. He's writing to the Roman Christians. There was some there. He said, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. 
that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That somehow I may be able to come to you. What was the somehow? You're going to get beaten, thrown in a prison cell, held in, in waiting for up to a year, then get to appeal to Caesar, go on a Roman ship, get crash landed somewhere. That's okay. He preaches the gospel to that island of Malta where he's crash landed. Then they get, keep going again. And I forgot to mention that on a stopover in Crete, he just planted a sneaky little church there for a night. There was Christians in Crete now. And then he keeps on going and on Caesar's dime, he arrives in the capital city. Here's what Acts chapter 28 says. That was was a long intro to just read uh, Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, verse 17. After three days, he called together to himself the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, and, and then he goes to explain his situation and preach the gospel. Look at verse 22. The Jews said back to him, We desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, that is, that's Christianity, right? the greatest world religion right now. They're calling this little sect thing. <laughs> they had no clue. We know that everywhere it's spoken against. No one likes this Christianity. It'll probably die out within a few years, Paul, but we'll, we'll, do, you, we'll do you a favor. You can, we'll listen to you again. Verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging, In greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Look at verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That is an exact fulfillment of his request in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20. Pray that I preach with boldness. It happened. And pray, as he says, I, I'm an ambassador in chains in Ephesians 6, but, but Romans, uh, Acts chapter 28 ends with the word was not bound, literally, really, without hindrance. He's chained up, but the word of the gospel is not. The, the apostle is locked up, but the word of Christ is not at all. It is being loosed and unleashed upstream in the capital city of the empire and flowing down through its through its aqueducts and streams of society into every other town and village. What an amazing God we serve, how he, how he works and plans out his own mission. But there's more. Ephesians 6, he says, I'm asking for boldness. I have a lot of opportunity. I need boldness. He preaches for, for two years waiting for Nero. But then there's also the need for, for, for boldness because he's going to have to front up to Nero. He appealed to the guy. He's going to see Caesar. He's going to be dragged in in chains, thrown in front of the king of the greatest empire the world has ever known in its influence, technology, and size. He's going to be dragged in front of him, surrounded by magistrates, proconsuls, senators, the most powerful and influential people in the whole world at that time, an international assembly and congregation, more influential than than G20 or whatever they call it these days with those hacks that fly somewhere. Here he is standing in front of them and he is going to do, he hopes by God's grace, the same thing he's done every time he gets the opportunity. He's going to preach Christ. He's going to expound upon the gospel. He's going to lift up Jesus as dead for sinners and alive forevermore, one day coming back to judge every soul, including Nero. Do you think he needed boldness? He uses this phrase in Ephesians 6, I'm an ambassador in chains. Ancient ambassadors, even even in the modern world, 
Ambassadors are never in chains. Ambassadors are exempt from political persecution. That's the point of being an ambassador. You can cross international lines. You can go to other kings that, 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 that you do not submit to. You can tell them what's what from your king, and you never get persecuted. That's the point of being an ambassador. That is Jesus. He's a king whose ambassadors are not respected by the world's kings. Because, because Jesus and the kings of this world, they don't have an agreement. They don't respect his kingdom, and he's taking over their kingdom whether they like it or not. And so as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we don't have the world's respect and, 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 and honor, but Paul is an ambassador in chains. And we see this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'd love you to see it. I'd love you to go there and look at it yourself. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul had asked for boldness as he was waiting in Rome to be seen by the king, the emperor, the Caesar. Verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, this is now after, after Rome, years later he writes to Timothy, at my first defense, that is when I first defended my case before Caesar, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. When he's in prison, he's got Epaphras, he's got Tychicus, he's got other guys around him, but he sends some of them off to do ministry. He sends some of them off to carry the letters, and others turn against him and hightail it out of there because they don't want to be up against, uh, uh, be seen with Paul when he's in front of Nero. You realize how deadly that is? With a, with a click of the fingers, they could be executed. They desert him. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. He's standing in the, in the hall with all of those people. That's a pretty good sampling for all of the Gentiles. Probably every nation in the Roman Empire of the known world was probably represented there right in front of him. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me in answer to the Ephesians' prayers, remember, so that all of the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The lion is Nero. He apparently acquitted Paul and said, you can go free. You're a kook, you're a hack. I don't know what you're saying. I don't care, but I won't kill you. Whatever it was, Jesus kept Nero's hand back, even though later on Nero would remove the head off of Paul's body. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the God we serve. That when we commit to airstrike, ground attack, pray that God work, pray that God move, pray that God ordain and architect situations in a way that we don't even know how to ask. We, we pray for specifics. We pray for people. We, we pray as earnestly and as perseveringly as we can. And then we get busy one step, one sermon, one evangelism, one day at a time preaching the gospel and you just watch what God can do. This is spiritual warfare. Preaching the gospel and liberating souls from sin, death, and Satan and hell where they lay currently bound. If you are not, if you are not a Christian, if you don't know that tonight, if you died, that you would be welcomed with open arms into the presence of God, if you fear death, if your sin is still against you, if you've not been born again, if that is you, then Jesus stands as a victorious king bidding you to come to him. He's coming to you and offering freedom, salvation, forgiveness of all of your sins, a clean account before God, a full set of armor to defend you against all of the devil's attacks, and a promise that he will take you home to his heavenly kingdom, to him be glory forever and ever. That's the promise of the gospel. You can be forgiven now. I commend you, I compel you to believe in Christ, to trust in his promise. He will never let you down. Let's pray. Father God, those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one will call on the name of the Lord and ever be put to shame, you tell us. Father God, would you please give to souls right now in our midst who are still outside of your son. 
to those who are still at odds with your law, who are still condemned by your holiness, Father God, would you please give to them by your mercy saving faith? Where they experience in their own mind right now a, a comprehending and a thinking about the gospel with, with an affection and a love and a joy that they've never experienced before. Would you give to them a sense of liberation from sin, a sense of victory over death, a sense of being loved by God because of what Jesus has done for them? Would you please, by the, by the death of Christ for sin in our place, by his resurrection, would you give saving life to those who are outside of you? And Father God, would you make us a praying church? Would you make us a church that commits not to our own ideas or forms of spiritual warfare, exciting or nerdy as they may seem? Would you make us committed to your process, your pattern of spiritual warfare, that we would be praying, praying people, and that we would be evangelistic people, that we would not just think that we know the gospel and sit still, but that we would seek to make it known Father God, please, even just this week, would you open up in the workplaces, in the family homes, in the, in the share houses, in the, in the streets, in the university classes, in the schoolroom, wherever we may be, would you please open up to each one of us in a way that we're left baffled by how many opportunities there are to share Christ? Would you please make unbelievers ask us? Would you give opportunities for us to speak into and, and then give us the boldness and the wisdom to speak your gospel? Please, Lord God. God. Make us a, a gospel war waging, evangelistic, praying, humble, zealous church. We pray this in Jesus' name, who is our great God and Savior. And everybody said, This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.